0: So this morning, we continue our series of reflections upon uh, the first letter of Peter. Last week, when we started this series, we we named the foundational promise underneath all of this reflection that we are a people of a living hope, a hope that cannot be defeated, that cannot uh, be proven as misplaced hope. Our hope's not in numbers or dollars, buildings, programs, pastors, people. Our hope is in, The God who is beyond all of these and has promised to guide us through whatever challenges we may face as we seek to be God's partners at work in this world for the sake of peace. This is who we are, church, destined not to be just happy and easygoing, but obedient to struggle and suffer as we are and as we know a living hope in God. And don't put our hope in those things that so easily disappoint. This morning, as we continue in this series, we celebrate the promise that our faith that we place in Jesus, likewise, cannot be defeated, nor will it ever be revealed as misplaced. And we consider that the natural outcome of that faith that we place in Jesus is salvation. Now, for centuries, the Christian church... Has sought to convince people to have faith in Jesus. But what does that really mean? Is Christian faith about believing particular things about Jesus, about God, about the stories in the scriptures, that, that they're true in certain ways, and that other understandings of Jesus and God and the Bible are not true? Is faith then about A list of ideas to which we ascribe, which we defend? And do we demonstrate our faith by our loyalty to this list of ideas above all else, even if that means that we are against others? So does this mean that those who have a different list of ideas that they claim to be true are not actually people of faith? And are they the adversary? Is Christian faith about Habitual rituals and practices in which we regularly participate. Do we demonstrate Christian faith by our going to church or going to Sunday school or as Presbyterians going to oodles of committee meetings? Do we demonstrate our Christian faith by doing and saying the same things in the same ways in the same places? Does Does this mean that those who don't do those same things in the same ways, in the same kinds of places, are not people of faith or can't be? Is Christian faith about being obedient to a set of prerequisites that we understand God to have handed down to us and demanded of us? Do we demonstrate Christian faith by our legalistic obedience to certain things demanded of us? And our legalistic abstinence from other things that God has demanded we not do? And does this mean that if we fail to either do the things we're supposed to do, or we fail to not do the things we're not supposed to do, does does our imperfection then mean that we have no faith? Does this mean that those who don't try to live by the same prerequisites and regulations can't be people of faith? So these... These three ideas of faith tend to be the most common manifestations of Christian faith as as we've known it in our era. Faith is beliefs, faith is rituals, faith is obedience. But this isn't actually how Jesus and his followers who wrote these early scriptures talked about faith. The Greek word that gets translated as faith And also as believing, which is terribly confusing and often very misleading, is the word pistis, which more literally means trust. Faith is not primarily believing truth statements or doing the right rituals habitually or obeying the right commands. Faith is primarily about trust. Christian faith is most fundamentally a trust of Jesus, trusting that he's the embodiment of God's goodness, truth, life, and love, trusting that he demonstrates what God is really seeking of and from us, trusting in his permission to let go of our loyalty to believing and rituals and legalism, trusting in his affirmation that we are all capable of living connected to God without having to earn it. Trusting that we all have gifts we can offer as we join in God's true work in this world. Not to police individuals, but to restore peace to the whole thing. Trusting that his teachings are the most important to follow. And that they will lead us to the most full and abundant of lives that we could experience. The key question for us is not... Do we believe the right things about Jesus, or are we saying the right prayers or singing the right songs about Jesus, or are we avoiding the right wrongs in order to earn something from him? The key question for us is always, do we trust Jesus? Do we trust him? Do do our lives, the actions, attitudes, and decisions of our lives demonstrate a trust in Jesus? Do the decisions that we make as individuals and families About our time, our talents, our resources, do those decisions demonstrate a trust in the way and the will of Jesus? Do the decisions, actions, attitudes of the congregation demonstrate that we entrust our time, talents, and resources to the way and the will of Jesus? In this letter, the author affirms the the people's pistis, faith, as trust, writing, Although you have not seen Jesus, you love him. You love Jesus. Now we're talking not about Eros, love. Ooh, Jesus is my boyfriend and I have these deep intimate feelings for him. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about phileo, love. Jesus is my best friend and my companion. This is agape love. Where Jesus is the object of my intentionality. It's more much more a commitment than a feeling I do things on purpose because they are for his sake and not my own they're not not doing what I'm doing to either meet my own desires or assuage my own fears what I am doing what is for the sake of Jesus instead of me and that is agape love then the author continues with the affirmation even though you do not see Jesus now because he's not here on the earth anymore. You believe in him. Misleading transit translation. You pistis. You trust him. And you rejoice with an indescribable joy. Even though he's not physically with you in person, your trust still lies with him. You still allow his spirit, his teachings, his example, his commands to guide you. You still... Make your claim that this is the good, real, true, and best way to live. You trust that. You allow Jesus' teachings, example, and way of life to shape the actions, attitudes, and decisions of your days. His voice is the voice you listen to about life more than any other. This is faith. Trusting Jesus. Loving Jesus. Not a feeling, but a commitment demonstrated in action that's intentionally for his sake and not our own, allowing Jesus to shape our understandings of God and self and other, to shape the attitudes, actions, and hopes of our lives, and doing all of this despite the fact that every single one of us is about 2,000 years too late to actually see him face to face in the flesh, despite the fact that he has not walked this earth in millennia, trusting him enough to make the ultimate deciding factor in the decisions of our lives, Jesus will and way, even though we never had the opportunity to physically sit in his presence and watch his example firsthand like John and Peter and Mary. Then the author makes this wonderful promise. The faith that you have, the trust that you are placing in Jesus above all else, it has this wonderful natural outcome Just like putting faith in money is this very natural uh, outcome of hoarding wealth or putting faith in success has a natural outcome of valuing promotion over coworker and family or putting faith in the Eagles has this awful natural outcome of shattered hopes and dreams. The outcome of your This is faith is trust. An outcome which you are receiving, writes this author, is the salvation of your souls. Oh, salvation of our souls. It sounds so otherworldly, mystical, except that, according to the pseudoscience of the day, it wasn't. It wasn't otherworldly. This isn't a promise about someday when we die. This isn't about being on the threshold of another realm, but very much about this realm. The Greek word translated as soul is the word suke, which is this pseudoscientific world uh, from their era for life force or vital force. They didn't understand how the body and the mind truly worked, and so they developed this understanding the best of their ability based on their observations. They thought that each of us had this vital force within us that was like both the fuel and the driver. This life force was that which animated the mind and the body, and not just generally, but in very particular ways. The thought was that a certain life force, uh, a certain shape and form of life force generated living with particular norms and attitudes, but that a different life force or a compromised or sick life force could cause someone to live with different norms and attitudes this life. If a group, a community, a nation of people live with a misguided, nefarious, broken, sick life force within them, it caused them to live with norms and attitudes that compromise their health and well-being, like antagonism, violence, greed, indifferent, etc. But, but, promises the author of this letter, the outcome of true faith, the natural outcome of trusting in Jesus and his ways, is the salvation of the life force. The word salvation is a Greek word that essentially means to restore integrity and wholeness. It's often understood as rescue from a threat, deliverance from danger, healing that which is broken, preserving safety. You get the idea. God's salvation is God's eternal, unconditional effort to restore and preserve the well-being of all things in heaven and on earth. And a necessary part of that work is the healing of the life force. So when we trust Jesus in those places of our mind and body that become our life forces in the here and now, dictating how we see and understand and respond to everything and everyone around us, When our commitment to the way of Jesus is that deep, our souls, our life forces are healed and restored and made well. We tend to talk about salvation as if it were a reward that's earned by some and not all, a ticket to the exclusive after party that we cash in someday, that salvation is this thing that's about someday somewhere else. But it's not a reward. It's a result. It's the natural result of well placed trust, a healing in the life directing soul that comes to all who trust Jesus more than anything or anyone else. Salvation is something that happens here. Here. Trust in Jesus leads to restored souls in the here and now, not just someday, in the here and now, which leads to lives of great rejoicing, despite Trying circumstances leads to lives of hope and abundance and fullness, and leads to lives that align with, embody, and act out the way and the will of Jesus, which means it leads to lives that inspire others to trust in Jesus, which then means that there are more healed and restored life force souls around us, which means that faith also results as these life forces find healing and restoration one at a time more and more around the world that it begins to reorder this world by love for others until Christ's kingdom of peace has come in fullness for all. This is the picture of salvation painted by the scriptures. We don't inherit it someday. We are a part of it right now. We're people of faith. And that means that we are far more and greater than a people who believe some things, do some things habitually, or obey some things. We're a people of trust. We are a people whose lives are lived joyfully in this unstoppable stream, which is the imperishable inheritance of salvation. For us and for all. And this is all because of Jesus. And so we ask. Do we trust him? Amen. God bless us now as we spend some time in reflection, considering what it means that we place our faith in Jesus and that the outcome of that, that naturally happens by the grace of God, is the salvation of our soul.